Hey, hello, and welcome to Mutan, our living ocean. I'm your host, Brian Martin, and today our topic continues to explore one of the facets of climate change and the ocean, this time focusing on one of the effects on our shorelines. Today, we're talking about sea level rise. We did get a chance to talk about natural sea level change over millennia in our second episode, both from a geological perspective and from oral histories. But today, we're focusing on the current changes affecting our coastline. Today's special guest is Patricia Manuel, professor in the School of Planning at Dalhousie University. And one quick note before we get started. Patricia and I briefly mentioned the Pacific Islands of Kiribati in the south or the equatorial Pacific, formerly part of the Gilbert Islands, and I want to acknowledge that I really mispronounced it more than once. It should be Kiribati and not Kiribati the way that it's written. So let's jump in. So good morning, Patricia, and thank you so much for being here with us. I really, really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. I always try to start with the what. And in a previous episode, we finally talked about climate change, specifically climate change and the ocean. So our listeners are aware that our average temperatures are increasing. But when we're talking about changes in sea level, why and how does climate play a role? Well, as your as your listeners are already aware, um, the average temperatures of the earth are, are, are increasing. So that's the atmosphere, but also the ocean. And uh, when that happens, um, two things uh, in particular, but there are, there are more um, for global uh, climate, for global sea level rise, uh, we have first the expansion of the ocean water because as water warms, it expands. So there's that. And then um, land ice is melting there. That's glaciers. And uh, these are, this is water that's been locked up in ice for very long time and uh, now with warming temperatures the ice isn't accumulating anymore as that's how glaciers form with snow accumulation and then conversion to to uh, ice in glaciers instead um, more water is uh, leaving the glacier than is being added to it and freezing into it and so that water eventually flows down off the glaciers and it makes its way uh, to the ocean, and that water is contributing to the volume of the ocean. Right. So we have those two okay. things together that uh, are the are big drivers in why sea level is increasing around the world. And so you mentioned glaciers. Now, the Arctic Ocean has a lot of sea ice, and so does the Southern Ocean. Mm-hmm. And when that's melting, does that have an effect on sea level as well? Not to any appreciable amount, uh, because that's because the sea ice is formed from ocean water, right? It's in the ocean already. So liquid or solid, it, it, uh, the volume will remain the same, more or less. Water melts and, and changes its, its form. That was a loaded question. Um, (laughs) I always like to, to, to get, I I was telling my kids actually to put ice cubes in, um, yes right up to the top of a glass of water right. and then let it melt. And uh, and you can really see just the way that it floats and then it, when it melts. So, so yeah, so glaciers and thermal expansion, but not the melting of sea ice. And a lot of people kind of get those confused. So oh. I just wanted to clear that up first. When people hear <laughs> ice, why shouldn't they get confused? Exactly. Sometimes? It's, it is, it's, it's, you know, there's lots of, lots of uh, complicated factors here, but yeah, the, 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 that analogy of ice cubes in a glass is 
the best one you can use. So it's the same sort of principle. Now, while I'm being contrary, and I know that you're not a geologist, but we can we can still touch on this. Um, I want to cover all the bases here because some people sure. are a bit naysayers, mm -hmm. but there are places in the world where sea level is actually dropping, correct? Mm -hmm. Can you maybe explain that really briefly or? Yep. Well, we talked just for a minute, a minute ago about glaciers on the land. And so when, um, you know, glaciers are huge, massive uh, sheets of ice, some of them are contained in, in you know, mountains, uh, basins and, um, you know, high elevations, but we still have parts of, of the globe where uh, we have uh, very large ice sheets, like obviously the Antarctica, Antarctica uh, that ice sheet and uh, Greenland, and then there are smaller ice sheets as well. And when, uh, when ice is pressing down on the land, and uh, before I even get to that point, and much <laughs> those ice sheets were much larger in the past, yeah. right? So our area, for example, uh, was only recently what we say deglaciated, that is the ice melted away, the glacier ice melted away from our region, you know, uh, between, I guess, eleven and 16,000 years yeah. ago, which is years. very recent in geologic terms. In any yeah. event, um, there are places on the globe that are even more recently uh, free of their ice sheet than that. So as the ice is sitting on the land, it's pressing, it's compressing the rock um, structure, the crust of the earth underneath it. So it deforms it, it warps it downward. And uh, when that happens, um, there's also this more plastic uh, layer beneath that, uh, that sort of pushes out from away from where that loading is happening and it um and so the ice is just the weight of the ice is is extraordinary and so when it melts away that weight is released and the land begins to buoy up again rise up again. yeah so that's one one reason why in some areas where this is happening right now recently areas recently free of that compression uh, you know, that land is rising up. So when you're talking about sea level, it's always what's the sea level relative to the land at any given location, right? So right. that in that case, sea level, even if there's a global rise in sea level, so from those melting glacial ice water and, um, and uh, thermal expansion, the net effect may be uh, from this rise that the sea level is dropping at that location. So that's one reason and that can be really significant i know in the central arctic we're talking hundreds of meters in some cases or at least hundreds of feet i can't remember now but um you can actually see those berms the beaches going up and up and up over a few thousand years so um it's not just just for our listeners it's not just a couple of feet that can, or a couple of meters that can be a very very large rise or a drop in sea level i guess over a couple hundred years yeah Sorry. i mean that's yes and you you do see these beach, beach markings um along the edge of the continent you know where in past the the water level was um higher and that's yes that's true yeah. yeah yeah and as a second part of that question we don't really have to get into it but in in some areas um there's different sides of especially on the coast of the U united states um sea levels are rising at different rates and mm -hmm. um and maybe just for our listeners we can just say that that's related to currents and the way that the the earth is moving and um and whatnot but there are some places that sea level is rising faster than others is that correct yep it is <laughs> it's a different <laughs> rate it's uh you know and and um 
I can do with ocean currents, yeah, because that's the wind and the ocean currents push water, you know, around and away from some areas and into other areas. The, the ocean basin is not like a bathtub that just fills up evenly as, yeah. you know, as glacier meltwater pours into it, for example. So there are going to be variations around the globe. Um, there's an interesting, uh, an interesting phenomenon, actually, that uh, we're just uh, climate scientists and geophysicists are only just now really beginning to um, to understand better and that's you know there's variations in in um, gravitational pull around the earth of seawater of ocean water so that will make a difference as well and where we see it really um, it, it appears to be very interesting is the melting of this glacier uh, the the Greenland ice sheet, for instance, and so it's a massive, massive body, and large bodies have a gravitational pull, and so when you're losing ice uh, from Greenland, you're changing the the mass of that that feature, right. and the gravitational pull actually weakens, and so water instead of being pulled into Greenland is being you know the shore the the coast it's actually um, the the pull is weakening and and uh, that changes yeah that changes um, how sea level is rising along the coastline to the south because water is moving you know it's not being pulled away from the southern part of the eastern part of North America I guess we could say uh, right. in the way it would have been in in the past with a much larger glacier so it's a very interesting phenomenon and something that uh, you know with different mass of the Earth in different places right that that effect yeah. would be the same. So that would affect uh, sea level as well. And then you get other other things happening that are, you know, again, this relative sea level rise uh, locally. Uh, some places, you know, where they're drawing a lot of groundwater out of the yes. ground, right, for mm -hmm. industrial development, residential development, what have you. I mean, th that, that those are areas where land is, is also sinking. Yeah. Um, and then we have, you know, I was talking about the decompression effect of right, land rising up. Well, eventually also land starts to to settle back down again. And if you think of it, you know, if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever sat on a waterbed, but when you're sitting on it, there's this bulge at the front yes, in front of you. And then when you get up, then that's what's happening as the ice is melting back. It doesn't just all of a sudden evaporate completely. And that's right. It does it in stages, right? So that weight, that compression weight is moving uh, back and there's always a bulge in front and as it moves that bulge changes and so if you think of getting up off of a waterbed then that bulge starts to settle back down again and that's happening in areas too like that's what's happening along the east coast of north america and very much so in atlantic canada that's a really good example of the foreland bulge if i remember correctly yeah that's right <laughs> yeah i mean the earth is not it, it's there's a lot of mobility there right and we simplified this so much so that we can understand it and we can talk about it. But yeah, it's definitely a little bit more complicated than yeah. this and that. But the, I guess the main takeaway here is that we're talking about the average sea level rise That's from right. a global perspective. So some places are going up, some are going down, some's going up a lot, some's going down, not as much. Mm -hmm. That's right. But we're also not talking about tidal amplitude and we're not talking about storm surges. So no. when we increase the mean sea level, so that average, we're essentially increasing where the maximum waterline reaches at those highest tides. Would that's you agree right. with that? Yeah, that's right. I don't know if it's worth talking about storm surge. It, it is a big impact. I mean, we we just experienced it with Fiona. We did. And we yeah. saw that, you know, um, the, the thing about storm surge is if it comes on high tide, 
that's when you're really in trouble, right? Yeah. And then, and then the the reach of that the um, that seawater will reach farther inland. That, that's right. And like, if you take, um, I mean, I'm in Halifax, and our what we call benchmark storm, everything that we gauge, that we compare everything else to when it happens, yeah. right? Is Hurricane Juan in 2003. Um, our storm surge here added about a meter and a half wow. to the tidal range right the highest tide at the time unfortunately i suppose uh hurricane if all things considered hurricane one did it, it it hit dead on so it was pushing you know along the coast um and pushing north it moved it was moving north which is sort of i guess the perfect storm for moving water into the shoreline of our province yeah. and yeah and that you know it, when that happened the it came a little i think it was a little after high tide so the tide was not at its maximum elevation but it added a meter and almost a meter and a half to the tide wow. and the maximum elevation was two and a half meters which is much greater than um the usual high tide for the area so right. you know that that means that water was flooding in um, into the land that uh, so that elevation and depends on the slope of the land too right so one and a half meters is pretty high and if you have a very gentle slope into your coast that can travel a long distance inland and then yeah. on top of that you have waves of course so all of these things get you know it's not just the sea level um, rising but it the effect that it also creates or amplifies the other effects that we we experience in big storms and of course now we're seeing these storms are much stronger we don't know all that's happening here whether they're really more frequent we know we we seem to be experiencing stronger storms but um regardless we do get very strong storms along this shore along this coastline Yes. Winter and summer, it doesn't, I suppose we shouldn't really say, well, it only matters if they're increasing or there are more of them. The fact is we get them and we always have. Sea level rise is just going to ensure that their reach in land because of these other effects is going to be greater. Yeah. And one of the actual, one of those perfect storms that I wasn't around, I don't think I was around, but I, I'm hearing more and more about is the Saxby Gale, mm -hmm. um, which I think had a huge, huge... Um, storm surge. And, and that actually kind of gets me onto my last general question. Um, that back in our fisheries episode, episode four, we talked about shifting baselines, where every new generation only really remembers what they have encountered in their lifetimes, or what was kind of in recent memory for their parents. Mm -hmm. And do you think that's occurring with sea level change as well? Or is sea level still a bit of a sea level rise or sea level change still a relatively new phenomenon as it's getting worse now? <laughs> That's a really good question. I haven't really thought of it as sort of intergenerational memory um, myself, although I know many cultures have that to their advantage, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I think it's that, that we documented, I mean, we know how sea level has been rising along the East Coast here for centuries because we've been measuring it for a long time. Yeah. Um, and I'm talking a very long time, hundreds of years when you start, you know, when you have a, an industrial and military kind of um, use of, of harbors, those things are really important to them to pay attention to. Right. So we have this long record, right, in, in many harbors and in other places, it's just how people over their 
their lifespans have been watching and recording it um, in their diaries and in logs that they keep for people for whom, you know, paying attention to these things are, is important. They, they are very diligent about maintaining these logs. Um, and so we know, you know, that, and we've been adjusting to sea level rise as well as, as it happens along the shoreline and probably many other places in the world. But uh, the way we approach our coasts now is probably different from right. the way we used to, right? They're no longer just, co I shouldn't say just, they're no longer places that we use and we need to reach the ocean for our livelihoods, our industry, but they've also become amenity spaces, like places yes. people like to go to, to build close, <laughs> to live, to be near the the excitement and the beauty of the ocean. And um, and they're putting themselves a little too close. So it, it's not, it's, it's about, memory and sharing that memory um, across generations, but it's also about how we've changed our view of what it's like to live along the shore and right. those two things together. But I think we have, there are many cultures that do have that intergenerational memory and we could learn a lot from that, I think, by, by looking to see how they've responded to it. It'd be very helpful. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now that we have an idea of what it is, Let's move towards the impacts of sea sure. level rise. I know you're you're a bit more of an expert on this. So what are some of the issues with sea level rise? Now, I have a few that I've written down, but we can mm -hmm. we can just kind of go through. You can you can talk about them if you'd like, or I can name some off and then we can talk about those individually. Do you have a preference? Oh, I can I I can if you have ones that you would like to talk about, we can do that. But I mean they're they're two biggies that then kind of sure. influence the others, right? So but Let's go with let's go with your uh, with what you have in, yeah. in mind. Okay. Well, the the ones that come immediately to mind, the one that comes immediately to mind is flooding, flooding which we've right. already talked about when we talked about storm surge as well. But there's this you know gradual inundation or creeping inland of the shoreline, of course. So where the where the tide reaches is changing, and land that didn't used to be part of the tidal zone is now becoming part of the tidal zone. And then on top of that, as we've already talked about, you have storm waves, storm surge, and that advancing you know, landward of the high tide line also carries with it the fact that, you know, those, those flood events, those big storms are going to have a much bigger flood impact. One of them is permanent flooding at tidal, you know, it's a, it's permanently flooded, or not permanently, it's diurnally flooded um, during the day. And then the other is, at, you know, it comes with big events. So that water right. recedes, but it does a lot of damage when it's flooding. Um, right. So one of them is essentially permanent at every high tide. And then the other tide. one is that yeah. it happens with a big storm event or something and yeah. then goes away for yeah. a year or so. Yeah, right. but the, pro well, it can flood back. The storm surge can, can leave, uh, flood backward, ebb into the ocean again very very quickly but the problem is that some of that water may end up sitting on the land um, in basins hollows and uh, gets blocked uh, by obstructions that might be in the landscape um, and it can also you know 
um, cause uh, problems for um, sal salinates or deposit salt when it dries out um, in right. the soil. It can contaminate groundwater. So there's a lot of issues that come with the storm surge itself. With the inundation, right. the gradual uh, in, you know, expansion or landward um, creep of the tideline, we adjust to that. But it does mean some of our structures are going to have to adjust to it as well, right? Like, Brace. raise them up move them out of the way completely get them out of harm's way it's that that's we're not going to stop the tide for sure obviously yeah um so that's one so flooding and um then there's erosion so right. uh that's very much dependent on the geology of of the shoreline of course but uh when you have water what's both these things, by the way, are natural processes. So yes. um, we're, yeah. I would say we are, <laughs> we're getting in the, the way problem. of natural processes, and that's why they become hazards to us. But they are natural processes, and they're both very important uh, for habitat, uh, you know, for habitat, for moving sediment around the shoreline. I mean, if it weren't for erosion, we wouldn't have our beautiful beaches. Um, you know, sand gets deposited offshore, creates sandbars, and those are important structures for, you know, shore protection as well. So coastal sediment is extremely important, but, you know, it's, it's, some people see it as a real problem when it's coming from their shoreline. Right? That's right. Yeah. And, and that is completely understandable. And, and uh, so if you're, if you're in an area that has, you know, what we call a soft, uh, soft coastline a softer geology it's either just soil and mud sediment, or sand mud, that or kind of, yeah gravel. it erodes very easily but there are also uh, rock types that erode more easily than others as you know and uh but it also doesn't it's not just about the type of rock it's also about the orientation of the rock uh to the um oncoming waves that will eat at the bottom of the, a bluff for example or a cliff or um, whether the material is fractured, broken up, if it's in right. layers, if it's, you know, loose. There's so many variables that come into play. I, could, I think you could probably say that um, solid granite, like at Peggy's Cove in Nova Scotia, is not yeah. eroding too rapidly compared to, or, you know, it's very slow. Uh, whereas, but, it, you know, it, it, there are fractures in that rock and it's blocky structure in some places. And so over time, you know, there will be thick areas where it will dislodge as a result of the pounding of the ocean against right. it. Yeah. And just in case someone isn't aware of the word, um, mm -hmm. erosion essentially is just the removal of a part of that coastline so part of the coastline disappears when the waves hit it and removes either the sand or the soil or even the rock yeah. um just in, just in case someone wasn't aware of that so yeah. i guess we have in, in areas that are rocky mm -hmm. you would have a lot more not necessarily a lot more but they would be prone to flooding so the water goes over the rocks and then in an area that is unconsolidated or a sediment mud gravel whatever loose yeah. then oftentimes that sediment will be removed um, and that won't necessarily even get to the point where it gets overtopped because it gets removed beforehand. That no, yes, but you can have both, of course. Uh, yes. yes. Yeah. And, and even rocky is <laughs> can have erosion, right? As I said, the type of rock uh, as, as folks who are in the sandstone regions know um, of, P, you know, PEI North Shore of, of Nova Scotia, for example, there's a lot of erosion happening there, even yeah. where it is uh, more of the 
rock structure, the sandstone, rather than the um, sediment. Like a lot of what we have that's forming the um, coastline in our region is deposits from the glaciers. Um, right. That, that, that material is called till, but essentially it's just a very, it's a loose mix of old soil and rock and sediment mud, like you said earlier, that's been, you know, scraped from somewhere else and left as thousands of years ago thousands of years ago as the glaciers melted away and that forms a that gives a lot of our landscape its form and that material is very very soft and easily moved about yeah and and again flooding also has to do with this you know how steep or flat is it at the coast right so if you've got a cliff you're probably not going to get flooding if you have a low kind of gentle slope back from from the shore then you can expect flooding Right. In many cases, yeah. So when you mentioned as well, um, I know it's happening around the Tantramars that the flooding is going farther inland and that's affecting um, the farmer's fields because a lot of the crops that we're growing don't grow well in salt water. Mm. So um, I can't say that it is affecting their fields because they do have the dikes to protect them. But right. if dikes were, you know, overtopped. Overtopped. Yeah, yeah, that that's a problem, right? I mean, it's um, anytime you get saltwater flooding land, the the you know it's it's going to have an effect. Yeah, and it's actually a problem that the government is taking very very seriously around around that area where it's a it's a multi million dollar problem, unfortunately. Yeah, it's not only about agriculture there, although agriculture is extremely important, obviously for. Yeah. everybody but it's it's also the transportation link between the highway and the yeah, and the railway the rest yeah. of canada and um and uh nova scotia yeah mm-hmm. um the other major issue as you mentioned as well is related to displacement so if we have a house on top of that mm-hmm. cliff or that hill mm-hmm. or too close to the water mm-hmm. um it's either going to get washed away, as we saw in Fiona, mm-hmm. um, or it's going to get flooded, as we've seen in Fiona as well. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about the displacement a little bit? Well, displacement, I mean, there's many, many meanings to the term displacement, right? Yes. So, uh, I mean, we could talk about it first broadly in terms of just impact to property and and land use and infrastructure structures that we, that we build for, um, you know, our homes, our roads, our rail, communication, you know, our ports, all that infrastructure that's there. So it's it's very broad, but essentially, um, the closer you are to the shoreline, the more at risk you are of being impacted by either or both flooding and erosion. And we yeah. have this. Uh, we have a legacy. We're, we're a coastal place, right? So of course we're going to have development at the shore and along the shore, and we have a legacy of transportation along the coast. I mean, that's right. At one time we would have traveled the coast by boats, but eventually there were that, there were no roads. There yeah. were no roads, and eventually, you know, over time we developed our roads and our rail systems, and it made sense. If we weren't going inland to the rest of Canada, then we were traveling, uh, connecting our communities along the shore or to, you know, inland to our regions, of course. But, you know, so much transport takes takes place along along the coastline of our provinces yeah. and our, our regions. So that um, all of that is at risk. And, and you know, people built, built close, but not at necessarily the shore because they 
that's where their livelihoods were. I mean, they, they're fishers. Um, there's, uh, in, you know, ocean industry, all of these things, people need access, uh, to conduct their livelihoods and commerce and trade. And, and I mean, so it's, you know, it's, that's just coasts and river basins, you know, those are the places that attract people for, for development. It's always been like that through, through the, through the millennia and around the world. So we're no different in that way. But I mentioned a little bit earlier, something's been changing in the way we um, move closer to the shore for reasons that, you know, we don't really need to be that close. We can still enjoy the ocean and the shoreline by being a little bit further away. Some reasons why that pattern has evolved is that, you know, there's the aesthetic aspect of it, kind of the romance of it maybe. Um, there's also, you know, people are subdividing land property along the shoreline, uh, because it's valuable and, uh, that means they can sell lots. Um, Mm -hmm. the subdivision may happen between a road that's near the shore and the coastline that happens. And in that case, you've got smaller properties where people don't have the opportunity to move back far enough away from an eroding shoreline or an area that's going to be flooded, for example, and they end up building too close. Now, you know, we used to build cottages that weren't, you know, they were more, um, they weren't as, as great an investment. I mean, there's a lot of an emotional investment in the cottage for sure. But in terms of the kinds of things we used to build there, they were less permanent. Right. You could um, move them. You could move you them to. or, you know, uh, over time you just rebuild. But now we're building incredibly expensive there's a lot of investment that's going into the shore also you know interestingly we had a debate and i'm sure you're probably aware of it in halifax about should the uh art gallery be built in what we know is a worst case what not maybe not even worse projected projected flood zone for sea level rise right and the argument was well you can all do all kinds of things to adapt the building we call it accommodate the building to be able to manage or you know not be severely impacted by flooding and also to not interfere with the flood process that's also important right so this is a way that we can accommodate we call it how we um how we build at the coast but you know do we really want to be doing that but you see that our 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 coasts our harbors used to be working harbors we still have them in rural areas for sure but the working harbor in the in in the um urban areas is now being pushed to other places and the traditional harbor has now gentrified it's become tourism harbors essentially tourism harbors or harbors where you know you have a lot of big very very great investment in institutional um, buildings in things like um, symphony houses, for example, art galleries, um, uh, expensive condos. We see that absolutely everywhere. So our relationship to the coastline has definitely changed. The question then becomes, you know, do we continue that or do we start to think about, well, maybe it's time to start thinking about leaving space. We call it making room for movement for these normal processes that become exacerbated during extreme events like big storms and also exacerbated now by sea level rise. Do we just give them space so that they're not hazards the way we've, we're now interacting with them. 
So before we move into ad- adaptation, mm-hmm. I just want to mention one last thing, and I know it's not your expertise, but I'm going to mention it, and um, and then we can kind of move on. But one of the other impacts from sea level rise is related to displacement, and that's not necessarily just here. That's we could be looking at climate refugees, okay. and specifically specifically in this case, sea level rise. And and again, I know this isn't your expertise, but there's there are many small islands in the Pacific, including the Marshall Islands, Tuvalu, Kiribati Group. Um, that are on the verge of literally going under. They're going to be flooded. Mm-hmm. Um, closer to home, there are 31 Indigenous communities in Alaska that are facing an imminent threat mm-hmm. due to coastal erosion. Now, just a quick note here. There are definitely some communities here in Atlantic Canada that are very much at risk of flooding, and I specifically didn't single them out. But what happens when Bangkok or Amsterdam or Manila or even New Orleans, New Orleans goes under. These have millions and millions of people that will need to relocate sometimes to a different country mm-hmm. unless we can somehow adapt to it. So if we move away from the what and the impacts and look at how we are dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've, we've looked at a couple of the impacts. We, we've kind of categorized those as, those as erosion or flooding. Mm-hmm. Um but how are humans adapting to erosion and flooding or sea level rise in general? So, well, um, did you want to talk about, you know, people being uh, people, not just individuals, but entire communities and maybe even nations needing to move or? We, we can, but I, I know you'd mentioned that it's not yeah, your expertise. Um, so we can leave it as, as I just mentioned, or we can talk about it. It really is up to you. I would say you asked what how we respond to that, and I mean it's not something that one anyone an individual can respond it, it, to, right? It's, yeah, it's almost a rhetorical question. In in it, how do we with an influx of millions and millions of people when there's millions of sorry not millions but there's dozens of other cities that are also being evacuated for the exact same reason? Yeah, um, it, and these well, are the cities that they would necessarily move to. Yeah, it depends, I guess, on you know we. If it's an entire nation and it's the entire landmass of that nation and its arable, livable land is going to disappear, then that is an international uh, emergency, right? Yeah. Um, and how we how we deal with it is far beyond my <laughs> my expertise. That is that is a major, you know, international uh, humanitarian global um economic development uh discussions and we and we have to have them <laughs> yeah, yeah. W- w- one example is the kiribati i, I believe it's kiribati um has actually the the country or the mm-hmm. islands have purchased land in fiji yes. i believe it's also fiji don't quote me on the names um to to be able to to grow their foods because they can they're also dealing with saltwater intrusion. Mm-hmm. Eventually, people are going to have to move, so they're farming in a different country yeah. to feed their own their own people and to have a yeah. place to move to. I think that that is something alone. Just this topic alone is something that you can <laughs> you can have a whole show about, and it's really worth exploring um, because it is it's it is we don't know the extent of the problem, and this is coastal climate change. We're also there's also all kinds of other impacts of climate change inland. That's right desertification, um, the loss of fresh water volume, uh, the, you know, changing river volumes, all of these things that affect agriculture, heat, heat impacts that make it very 
difficult, if not impossible, will be impossible to live in some parts of the world without extraordinary yeah. measures to manage climate locally, you know, cooling. I mean, there's going to be, you know, the, the, this is going has the potential to create huge migrations. We've the world has dealt with huge migrations over time, but maybe we don't know that how this compares to what's happened in the past, right? That's usually, right. Our, usually migration, refugee migration is is a result of war, and this is this is a, a very different context, and it's happening in different ways around the globe. But you can also think of it, you know, in terms of local, um, the need locally to retreat. Yeah. And we refer to it in, in some cases as what we call managed retreat. So you may be talking about a neighborhood, you may be talking individual houses to a neighborhood, to an entire community. And, and you did mention um, some uh, community, indigenous communities in Alaska, but uh, they, th this is a reality for, in terms of the coastal and oceanic impacts of climate change. This is a reality for, um, uh, communities wherever they are in a place that is already now experiencing these uh, flooding and erosion problems and thinking about, well, should, you know, can we continue to live in a floodplain essentially or a flood yeah. zone or an erosion hazard area? Can we, what, can we continue to live there or is it now reach the point where we have to think about moving away? And that, that is something that, you know, sometimes we might say, okay, an individual property owner is the only person impacted and um, maybe they'll have to just manage that on their own. But more commonly, it's not just the individual, it's it's a lot of other people as well in an entire community. And that has to be a response that's taken very carefully because you have to, first of all, consider what um, that community means to people, right? It's not just the physical features, the, the built environment, because then those alone carry a lot of meaning, but it's also the connections people have within their community and the supports and the relationships. So when you talk about moving places back, you're talking about an entire change in relationship to land and sea that people yeah. have had for many generations right and that can even mean cemeteries right like these Absolutely. cemeteries aren't, aren't moving yeah uh, cemeteries no. are moving unfortunately as well yeah. yes very very true i mean and you know some of the most beautiful places to have a cemetery is in a bluff overlooking the sea and in yeah. some parts that's an eroding bluff and and it it's very distressing for people yeah. when that happens to see these cemetery cliffs erode away because of course then you know, you're losing, you're losing your loved ones um, as well at that point. And it's not yeah. what you had intended. It's, it's a very distressing thing, I think. And, but this idea about moving communities and moving neighborhoods, et cetera, moving infrastructure, you also have to then think about where are we moving to? What's suitable? Yes. Uh, what's yeah. available to us? How do governments support that? Is, you know, how do they find the land or purchase land or keep land in reserve and make decisions around, you know, reserving land for that eventuality for, you know, keeping it in holding on, holding land, not developing it in other ways uh, in order to have it in place for that time when we might need to, communities may decide they need to move uh, to, to avoid these risks. That's so. That's one of the one of the ad adaptation scenarios, which mm -hmm. is essentially retreating. retreating. So that's moving, yeah. moving our house and letting nature do what it is going to do mm -hmm. eventually. 
there's there's two others um the other one would be that i can think of anyways it would be raising mm -hmm. so if you put something on on stilts and mm -hmm. um that'll that'll buy you some time i guess do you have any experience with raising no i don't myself personally okay. but i'm, I'm okay. fully aware of it no i am aware of it i mean it's st houses on stilts have been around for a very long time that's you know many um many cultures around the world have used that so that they can uh, they've adapted uh their um they're living to water and they have experience with constructing houses, elevated houses, uh, whether right. it's in agricultural areas or it could also be in, they're not necessarily stilts, but there are other forms of elevation and providing for flow of water beneath or through a, you know, a basement, not it's a flood, a flood accommodating structure that the house sits on. And uh, those can be in urban areas. So there are methods to accommodate water flow when you are in a, a place where you know you are regularly flooded and um th those are engineering uh structural engineering approaches that um you know are specific to site develop site design and also building design you can also raise the land i mean that's what filling in right. is about yeah. right and building up the elevation of the land so that you're higher than you create an um, the island, anticipated sea level rise and storm surge impact. So that's another approach you can use. Um, all of these things, you know, there there are programs. Uh, Europe has an extensive uh, program on cities living with water, water cities. So uh, they have been They have had a lot of experience over 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 a very long period of time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Some of it devastating and others very very successful and so they've been they're experimenting and continuing to develop new techniques to improve how to live with water you right. can't you can't necessarily retreat an entire urban See. area right yeah. yeah unless you really have to unless you really have to and then you have the other option which is to protect with seawalls dikes right dams um yeah storm surge barriers this type of thing and that's actually i want to focus a little bit that's that's my third one would be armoring mm -hmm. and i want to focus a little bit more time because i think that's what pope people not popes that's what people um know a little bit more about is mm -hmm. protecting mm -hmm. um do you want to talk about that a little bit sure protecting how is we a, armor yeah protecting is a very natural response to 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 a situation like what we're in. Um, and it's something we've relied on for a very long period of time. And you're right, people are very familiar with it. Um, it's, you know, it's it's a natural inclination to want to protect your, you know, the place you live and and uh, that's an individual or a government wants to protect its, its, its roads and its rail and all its infrastructure from these impacts. And so they build seawalls and they armor the shore. They, we call it hardening the shore. And it can be, you know, highly sophisticated infrastructure of, um, you know, seawall construction, or it can be just piling a bunch of rock along the shoreline and just hoping that it stays in place and that it does the job. Um, right. Not necessarily the best approach. You know, if you're going to do that, you should be, you know, ensuring that you've got the right types of materials and you're placing it properly. Um, it, you know, it requires, uh, you know, planning, understanding your shoreline and uh, 
I would say you're best served when you bring in engineers to help you out with that and, and do right. it, you know, and, and in the more complicated, in the complicated uh, scenarios, of course, that's exactly what happens, but that's not the way that some landowners would approach it. And the, but you know, there are people who know how to place the right type of rock appropriately. However, <laughs> and we see, we see that a lot with, um, with people that are trying to protect against coastal erosion. That's the usual. Yeah. 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 Um, it, and seawalls will also protect against flooding to a certain extent, but they have to be fairly high to do that, right? Exactly. Yeah. So erosion happens in two, you know, a number of different ways, but the the one that we're probably most familiar with is this: the waves are cutting, they're eating away at the bottom of a of a bluff or a slope, and yeah. then that destabilizes, you know, this the material on top of where it's been eating away just slumps down, or the face can, uh, you know, slump and. Uh, then it falls to the, it slumps down to the base of the cliff and then the waves carry the material yeah. away. Washes away. Washes yeah. away. You can also get erosion from the top of the cliff where water is running off the land and it, you know, percolates down through the um, the top of the bluff. The material might be loose and that can create gullying um, and it uh, also weakens the the um, the material, on the, 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 you know, how, how well, how the material on top is holding together. And then it can also uh, create a problem with uh, slumping at the top of the bluff. And then eventually that has the uh, the effect of also making its way down the slope into the bottom. So you can get, you know, there are different different ways in which, um, and there are other, other processes that occur as well. But armoring the shoreline carries its own sort of, it's a two-edged sword, right? You might be protecting uh, an immediate section of shoreline, but sometimes by doing that, you're also pushing or, def- you know, deflecting that energy that would be pounding away at that. <laughs> that to your neighbor's house. Your neighbors. Um, it, also, it also will uh, rob the, um, the shoreline of sediment supply, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. another problem. Um, it's... And sometimes, you know, it doesn't, the, the, the energy of the waves hitting, uh, hitting an armoring, uh, hitting rock or stone wall or cement wall, that just pushes the energy down into the base and it erodes right. at the base of the structure and then it itself begins to fail. So right. it's, so it's, it's, a, it's almost it's a, a bandaid. Solution. It's a, it's a solution to a problem, but it, might cause more problems than it solves. And it's also something you have to keep at over and over again, because it has to be repaired, up, kept, kept up, that sort of thing. Now, so those are all um, examples of hard armoring. You mentioned mm-hmm. hard uh, hardening. Mm-hmm. There's also soft armoring. Um, and I don't know if you have a lot of experience with, with nature-based solutions. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, so I'm working with a group I'm part of a, a group led uh, through um, Transcoastal Adaptations um, Solutions for nature-based approaches. And uh, this is a group led by Danica Van Prusty at uh, St. Mary's University. It's a center okay. for um, exploring and actually implementing nature-based solutions at the shore. So I am affiliated with that group in an associate way. Um, they are... Uh, they are, as I said, Danica, Dr. Danica van Prusty leads that group. It's a group of highly capable um, and uh, 
really knowledgeable people about nature-based solutions. So you might right. want to reach out to them. I will. Yeah. Um, another uh, a company that is uh, part of this and a co-founder is CB West Wetland Environmental um, Systems and uh, led by uh, Tony Bowen. Yeah. And so um, together they have done so much work over the years on nature-based solutions in in Danica's case, it's been working with the provincial government and, and also now with federal government on um, marshland dike realignment and uh, growing marsh in front of realigned dikes. And then in uh, all, that is much of the work that Tony's group has been working with, but also on salt marsh restoration. Uh, they're incredibly knowledgeable. So for really practical um, answer to the question, I would absolutely, <laughs> I mean, they are the ones to speak with. However, okay. um, I can talk a little bit about it. Um, yeah, just briefly. So, yes, yeah, so nature-based solutions is essentially going, working with nature to do what it does best, right? And, and to use that as, a, as a, a replacement in some cases, but also a supplement to the way we tend to protect shorelines. I would say one of the very first principles of nature-based approach is what we do call making room for movement, and that's just giving nature space to yeah. do what it needs to do. Uh, yeah. Moving back or staying out of the way in the first place. So that is another adaptation we didn't talk about. We talked about protect, accommodate, retreat, but we didn't talk about avoid. And that, that is the other one. That would, um, I guess that'd be the first one if you, if, if you can. If you can, we prefer to say avoid it first. And you can do that yeah. through, you do that through common sense, but you can also do it through legislation Hopefully. and land use planning, right? So yeah. it's just taking, you know, reserving that space along the shoreline for erosion and flooding to occur. And because we now know we can, we are projecting where these probable flood and erosion zones are going to be then um, by doing that projection, we have a good sense of what areas we should avoid building anything problematic. Doesn't mean you can't use the space. There are other things you can do. I mean, obviously it's habitat land. It's extremely important for biodiversity. Um, and also uh, for recreation, passive recreation, those are also important things to be able to, to, to do if you want to think of it in terms of making the space available to us. But right. First and foremost, just give nature a place to be. Then um, other other ways in which uh, we can use nature-based approaches is to uh, restore the coastline to a natural state, um, or right. or improve its state if it's if it is still you know natural but degrading because of interference in other ways. Um, Transcoastal and other groups have been, uh, Green Shores is another program that is uh, developed out in uh, BC, but they now are working um, through Transcoastal yes. in the, yes. e yeah, yeah, in the Atlantic region. Living Shorelines is a program that's, uh, I think, you know, really gained hold in North America through work that was being done in Maryland and in Chesapeake Bay, but it's now come north and we're and I, I think that's the one most people are aware of where yeah. they're they're actually planting that's right um uh, on the on, on the, the soft sediment mm -hmm. to avoid that slumping in the first place wherever possible yeah so they do two things they can do bank stabilization and they also mm -hmm. plant you know they restore the tidal vegetation the tidal zone vegetation and right. uh there's a number of projects are now happening around the region we didn't have them 
until just recently, but we're now seeing projects developing around the region um, to demonstrate it. Uh, we have to show that this can work in what we called cold regions, coasts, because right. there's different yeah. dynamics, right, for we have cold ice. regions versus warm regions. Uh, mm. So these are pilots. They're not really large, but they're they're getting uh, going. And the more experience we have with them in this kind of environment, the better. The idea is that the material at the shore, the plants, you know, if you think about a salt marsh, for example, when waves are coming in, that vegetation has a dampening effect on it. Yes. It, it, it lessens the the height of the wave and the energy of the wave, but it absorbs it. So that's yeah. that is important, of course, because it lessens the the regular kind of erosive action at the shoreline. Um, and then uh, you know, replenishing the, the beach and sandbars, rebuilding them. Um, those are you know create. Uh, Natural sort of uh, breakwater dune systems are very important uh, at the edge of the coast to protect um, against impacts behind them. So the land that exists behind dunes is protected by the dune structure itself. Um, yeah. there, were big, uh, there was a big impact, of course, to the dune systems along the north shore of PEI during the huge. huge. But from my understanding, they were impacted the way one expects. And they will. They are rebuilding. There are already signs of of If we can stay off of them, if, if we can you stay can off stay of off of them, and that's yeah. another. We got to keep our feet off. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and our dog's feet. Yeah. So they're they're. <laughs> so you know the the combination of improving the coastal resilience through natural using natural systems the. Um, and just providing the space for those systems to evolve and develop that's protecting our shoreline and also increasing and preserving our biodiversity of the tidal zone and the ocean system. And I, I want to mention one last thing, because you, you did mention wave attenuation. Mm -hmm. And um, I know aquaculture is relatively large here within the Maritimes. Mm -hmm. um, we're starting to look at kelp aquaculture kelp for either for food or for, right. for fodder um and we we obviously have mussels and oysters and mm -hmm. a, a bunch of non-fed aquaculture here mm -hmm. and um i don't know if, if you have much experience with the the wave attenuation i know kelp forests in general as you mentioned will mm -hmm. moderate the the amount of wave energy that hits the coast but from a an aquaculture perspective have you worked with that or do you have an experience no, I don't personally. I just know what my colleagues at uh, Transcoastal okay. have um, have worked with, and oyster reefs are now becoming quite uh, popular yeah. as a way of their 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 natural uh, nature based um, barriers, right? To to um, slow down the approach or break up the approach more appropriately of waves coming into shore. So. Uh, these natural barriers are, you know, um, something that provides both this uh, protective um, feature at the shoreline, but as you said, you can also use them in an aquaculture context. But I personally don't know much about that at all. Well, nothing really. So <laughs> that's not <laughs> and, and the, that's not to talk to me about it. But <laughs> but uh, oyster reef reef new reefs built from oyster shell, like encouraging yeah. oyster cultivation, has very definitely gained a lot of fans. There are some here for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And there's a there was a project. There has been a project in the Pictou Landing area actually on um, oyster reefs, right along the Northumberland shore. 
And the nice thing about it, about those is that they actually accrete, they move upwards as sea level rises. So they, they, hopefully they can keep up with sea level rise and keep that wave energy down. That's, that's true for them, but it's true for many other features at the shoreline as well. And I'm glad you mentioned that because if you have a healthy marsh and a healthy beach and dunes, Mm -hmm. they will accumulate sediment Um, in a marsh. You're accumulating sediment, you know, so so sediment that's mineral but you're also accumulating organic sediment and if they have room to you know if they're if they're being fed with sediment and they also have room to migrate landward that's the room to move they will they should be able to keep up with with um sea level rise but if they're if they're blocked by development if they're blocked by a seawall or just a cliff right that's a natural feature but if they're built if they're blocked by development we're in the situation of what we call coastal squeeze. And I, you've, I, I'm right. sure you're familiar with that term. Yep. And that <laughs> means that the, the natural feature and the habitat it supports are going to be squeezed out because there's going to be nowhere for them to move landward. Yeah. And as that tidal zone extends landward, there's nowhere for them to go and grow. And so, again, we come back to the need to just provide space at the coastal zone. Space. We have and the a, nice thing about the oh sorry I was, I was just gonna say the nice thing about those those marshes and those roots is that they also store carbon which is a completely different episode and we're not going to talk about that today yeah. but th- that that is a huge part of it is it um, it yeah. benefits one thing will benefit another yep did you want to mention something else I kind of cut you off there hmm you were about to say it maybe it just no I, I think <laughs> <laughs> there's we've covered an awful lot of territory okay. ground with this yeah i think we've been all over the place you're going to have a lot of editing to do but okay so yeah no go ahead i was going to say i would really encourage you to contact the folks folks at transcoastal i will yeah um i guess one one last question and i often try to finish off with a bit of hope so that people don't leave f- feeling too crummy mm-hmm. although when you're dealing with climate change and related aspects it's a bit tricky mm-hmm. um because that 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 climate change train has already been in motion um but is there anything that we can give us a little bit of hope or should we really start to prepare for the next few decades and buy a life jacket (laughs) buy a life jacket um well everybody who's near the shore and goes out in a boat should have a life jacket anyway so (laughs) not necessarily because of sea level rise I think being prepared is, that's sort of the metaphor, being prepared yeah. is important regardless. Um, hope. Um, I would say that it's changing, ho- I hope anyway, that it's changing our relationship with the natural world. Right. Um, we just talked about nature-based approaches, right? I, I've been, I was trained as a physical geographer and um, I have always had a real passion for the environment and natural landscapes. And I sort of subscribed to what we've, what was for a long time referred to as minority traditions in, in land use management planning and environmental management. And those come from traditions that are ecosystem based. They're not minority anymore, but they were at the time ecosystem-based or land ethics, you know, the traditions of Rachel Carson, for example, or Aldo Leopold and environmental planning described by people like Ian McCarg in Western systems. And um, those ideas now have obviously 
are making an impact. Maybe not, those names are still there, but there are many, many, many more influential people and thinkers and people living in communities who are trying to make a difference, non-governmental organizations, even our governments are starting to pay attention now. You see it. I mean, Canada's developing yeah. an adaptation plan. That's happening all around the world. Yes, there. It, it, yes, it might not sound like that, and it might look strange when you read the news, but I can tell you, because I've been in it for a long time, um, that it it's almost the amount of information and the amount of effort to move things ahead is, I wouldn't say it's overwhelming because it's hugely, it's hugely welcome, but it's there and right. people are really paying attention now. And I think that it comes with just a changing sense that, you know, there are ways of doing things that are, that were always available to us. And had we used them at the time, we'd be potentially in a different place now but we do have the tools available to us we do have the traditions we do have the knowledge and on top of that we're starting we're really beginning to look at cross-cultural exchange and knowledge and learning from one another yeah we've always talked about silos in our own system but we've also <laughs> siloed our yeah. cultures right and right. I, we see those barriers starting to break down and for me like that that is just something that is so new in in terms of how we've responded as a culture maybe not individuals necessarily but as a culture and i think that's that's really wonderful a sign of hope yeah you know it's climate is going to continue to change i mean it, I the train's know, moving it's always change it's always changing it's just that we've you know, we've we've now accelerated something beyond what uh, we had anticipated and or even yeah. planned for, and we don't we're not great at changing along with it at a pace that needs to happen, <laughs> right? So we have to really, you know, I guess the hope, but the hope is we can, you know, start to make these shifts in our culture and our way of doing things faster because we're going to have to respond much more quickly, but. We're now moving. And for those of us who have been watching this excruciatingly slow progress for a very long period of time, we have to be hopeful now. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that I missed that you think we should touch upon? No, I don't think so. I think you've we got think more than enough there to edit. How long is this podcast? <laughs> 20 minutes? <laughs> uh, it's somewhere between 30 and an hour, depending. I try to keep it under an hour. <laughs> We're at a, we're at an hour and two right now, and then I've got to put a bit of an introduction. But yeah, thank you so much. I really really appreciate your time. Well, if there's anything you want to review, or if you need me to repeat something, or just take it out altogether and get somebody really knowledgeable in there, that would be great. <laughs> no, this is wonderful. I'm gonna just hit stop here now. Well, there we have it. That concludes our episode for today. Let's each do our best to stay off the sensitive coastal habitats to encourage their continued growth and the services they provide for us, free of charge. Until next time. Well, I'll help. Injured well, anchoring and lying low. Injured well, it seems the best years have passed you by. Executive producer for the Wuhan, Our Living Ocean series, is Vanessa Mitchell, with the episodes produced by the Maritime Aboriginal People's Council. Interview, narrative, and editing by your host, Brian Martin. Today's special guest was Dalhousie University's Patricia Manuel. The song Broken Reed in English, written by George Edward Chevry, performed by Cloland Johnson, translated and performed in Mi'kmaq by Elder Catherine Sorby. 
Production support provided by the Government of Canada, specifically the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, Oceans Management and Contribution Program. All rights reserved. Injured Can you hear the eagle cry high above the storms of your lonely world? Calling you to rise up, become strong again from your water world.